Uh, thank you so much, and thanks for hosting me. It's great to be here for my first time in Singapore. Um, and so, as, as Dr. Abdullah mentioned, I really wanted to, to write this book to address a topic that I think a lot of people talk about, but they don't really understand or, or research too deeply. Um, and of course, with the start of kind of the Gulf crisis in 2013, and then again in 2017, there's, this has become an increasingly polarizing issue in, in the Gulf. And so it's one that, that I think is worthy of, of a lot more study than, than just my own. Um, and so when I started the research during my PhD, I wanted to essentially use the book, um, as use the study of the Muslim Brotherhood as a way of undermining rentier state theory. So essentially the idea that rentier state theory puts forward about no taxation, no representation, summarizing political life is one that I take a lot of issue with. And so I wanted to use the, the example of the Muslim Brotherhood as proof that independent movements do exist inside of, of the Gulf states, despite the fact that uh, there are great material benefits for citizens. So essentially, this idea of politically quiescent citizens in the, in the Gulf is uh, outdated and, and not exactly uh, true. Um, so I also wanted to kind of de-exceptionalize the Gulf in a sense by showing that the same ideologies, particularly Muslim Brotherhood, that hold appeal other, in other parts of the Middle East also have a following in the Gulf. Um, so, so oil wealth doesn't really mitigate uh, the appeal of these types of organizations. Um, and I wanted to make this related point that I'll, I'll go into a little bit in more detail that the social and the political are very much linked in the Gulf, especially in, in the states that lack parliamentary elections. And so the, this link, I think, between the social and the political has often led policymakers and analysts, I think especially um, in the West, to presume incorrectly that the Gulf kind of lacks political life, um, when in fact I'd say that that political life may just be less institutionalized and more informal than we may expect and than we may be accustomed to. Um, and so the, because the Brotherhood is a social movement and has kind of Hezb and Harakat, uh, the party and the movement, it's well suited to this type of environment where the social and the political are quite linked. Um, and so in terms of which countries I covered in the book specifically, and we can talk about others, of course, in Q&A, um, and I'll mention them briefly as well, I looked at what I call kind of the super rentier states of Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE. So these are the states that are the wealthiest, provide the most handsome benefits for citizens, and so by the logic of rentier state theory, would be the least likely to host any type of independent movement, Islamist or, or otherwise. But nonetheless, all three have hosted uh, Muslim Brotherhood affiliates at some time or another in their history. Um, they're also similar in that they have uh, Sunni and expatriate majorities. Um, and I don't think they've really gotten as much scholarly attention in terms of their domestic politics as some of the other states of the Gulf. Um, <coughs> Stefan Lacroix's work on the Saudi Islamists, on the Sahwa movement in particular, has, has been excellent in terms of uncovering what's happened in Saudi, but we haven't had, I guess, similar treatment of these other smaller states. Um, so I'd say that, that just as kind of rentier state theory falls short when it comes to political life in the Gulf, the literature on political Islam doesn't help us out too much when it comes to the Gulf either. Um, there's a lot more focus on the poorer, more democratic states of kind of Egypt and Jordan, and not much focus on what happens with uh, these movements in other types of, of states. And so I wanted to bring together essentially these two strands of literature for the first time to highlight um, the involvement of Gulf citizens specifically in brotherhood movements. Um, and so I, a lot of people have asked me and why I used rentier state theory in the book because pretty much everyone who studies the Gulf hates it um, and criticizes it. Um, and, and I think that there are a couple of reasons that I've come up with. I mean, one is that 
it comes up a lot in the region. People talk about we're wealthy states, and this has consequences politically, socially, obviously economically. Um, also, it's it's kind of the predominant theoretical framework that we have in Gulf studies. Um, so it's kind of hard to to um, ignore it completely. Ultimately, I also think that I couldn't ignore it just because I think that brotherhood movements in the Gulf are fundamentally different from brotherhood movements elsewhere in the region due to the fact that they're in these rentier environments. Um, and basically, there are three main functions that, brother, that kind of define brotherhood movements elsewhere in the region that are either completely irrelevant or less, irre less relevant when it comes to the Gulf context. So kind of the first and most obvious one is that the Brotherhood isn't needed to provide social welfare in the, in the Gulf in the same way as it is in a place like Egypt or Jordan. Um, of course, they can can and have supplemented people's um, you know provisions from the state in certain areas inside of the Gulf, but they don't create parallel institutions, and in fact are kind of unable to create those same parallel institutions that they have in other parts of of the Middle East. Um, second, the organization of electoral campaigns, which is a huge part of Brotherhood life um, elsewhere, is irrelevant in two of the countries I covered in the in the book, in Qatar and the UAE, since they do lack these kind of politicized legislatures. Um, Kuwait, of course, is an exception here, and I'll talk about that in more detail later, um, because it does have a, quite an active parliament, uh, of which the Brotherhood uh, has long been a part. And third, um, there's less of a need for the Brotherhood to provide kind of an alternate social network in the way that it has been elsewhere. These are relatively small societies. They're um, kind of, there are strong kind of tribe and clan relations among citizens. And so this isn't um, a situation like Cairo in the 1930s, where you have people coming into a city not knowing anyone and kind of seeking connection through uh, Islamist organizations. It's a, it's a different uh, social environment. And so I think because the Brotherhood doesn't have as many tangible responsibilities in these Gulf states, um, they can be much more flexible in terms of their structure and in terms of their function. And so that, I think, makes them qualitatively different from Brotherhood movements in other parts of the Middle East. And so essentially, I wanted to use the book to look at what then do the Brotherhood movements in the Gulf do if they don't have these three main functions at their core. Um, and I guess what I found was that Islamist movements in these rentier environments, I think they're less likely to be placated by payouts. Um, this is because they're ideologically driven. And so I think that makes it actually more probable that they could be powerful voices of political opposition or uh, of social mobilization. Um, and indeed, I think the, the Brotherhood in the Gulf is particularly powerful because it does provide kind of ideological inspiration in states that are often criticized for lacking cultural vibrancy. Um, also, I think in these states, which are expat majority, um, modernization has been accompanied by a considerable degree of secularization and westernization. And so in that type of an environment, Islamism can be a powerful, um, powerful form of nationalism, really, um, and a means of preserving local identity and local values. Um, and so in that sense, can be appealing, uh, appealing to, to large numbers. Um, despite this kind of base similarity across these states, um, and the super rentier states in particular, which have a lot of demographic um, and social and political similarities, they, they still look very different. So in Kuwait, the Brotherhood, as I mentioned, is an institutionalized and accepted part of the political system, which has at its center a very active and vocal parliament. In Qatar, though, the Brotherhood has only really ever played an informal social role, has never had a political branch, um, and dissolved itself uh, at the end of the 90s. And in the UAE, there's no longer any formal Brotherhood organization since 2012. Um, 
yet the organization had kind of different functions across across different emirates that I'll get into a little bit a little bit later. Um, and I think it's it's also interesting when we look at how, the extent to which the Brotherhood has polarized has, has polarized the Gulf states. It's striking to think that the Brotherhood movements there actually began quite similarly. So in the 1950s, many members, especially of the Egyptian Brotherhood, moved to the Gulf to staff nascent uh, education, judicial systems, ministries of Al-Qaf, things of that nature, and were welcomed as such. They were seen as a bulwark against Arab nationalism. So in the beginning, the Brotherhood was pretty much welcomed with open arms throughout the Gulf. And so since that time, of course, we've seen a huge change where we have um, a lot of statements against the Brotherhood made by uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE in particular, and accusations that Qatar supports the group. So I think the fact that this, there's been so much change over the decades demonstrates the, the degree to which these groups have become localized, and also the extent to which different governments consider the Brotherhood uh, threatening in a, in a political way or, in, or potentially in a social way. And of course, the rise of Islamist opposition movements throughout the Middle East during the Arab Spring led everyone, I guess, to focus keenly on the Muslim Brotherhood as a potential source of opposition, and the Gulf was no exception to this. Um, and so I think that, that really the reason for such a focus in the Brotherhood in the Gulf isn't just that it, it is a regional power, but also due to their involvement in domestic politics politics and political life. Um, and the persistent presence of the Brotherhood throughout these Gulf states, I think, is something that, um, that governments have reacted very differently to and has led them to, to have a very dis distinct strategies in terms of how to, to engage with or crack down upon um, different Islamist movements. Um, and again, I think this does demonstrate the extent to which these groups are both localized and seen as potential threats to power. Um, and so I think that really what, what we've seen is that the more the Brotherhood is considered to collude with secular opposition movements, especially in places that lack parliamentary elections, the more it's seen as potentially politically problematic, and hence the crackdown, I think, in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, whereas in a place like Kuwait or in Bahrain, where there, there is a, an outlet for political participation of the Brotherhood, they're seen as less politically threatening or, or less, um, less of a... a dangerous challenge, I guess. Um, the Qatar case is a bit different um, because the Brotherhood was never politically challenging there or even problematic in any way. Um, I think the, the Qatari government um, doesn't have a problem with it operating either at home or abroad. And so you have this very interesting link now between domestic politics and foreign policy, which we can talk about a bit more in detail. Um, but I, I'd like to stress again that the domestic calculations are what's at the key here. And um, and so basically I'm gonna go through briefly the three cases I cover in the book just to demonstrate the extent to which these organizations are different and the extent to which they still matter, even in kind of super rentier environments. Um, so I'll start with Kuwait. Um, the Kuwaiti Brotherhood was established in 1951, so a decade even before Kuwaiti independence. Um, it was organized under the umbrella of Jamiat al-Irshad al-Islami, uh, the Islamic Guidance Society or Irshad, um, and it mainly wanted to fight what it considered creeping Western influence as personified by Christian missionaries who were in Kuwait at this, at this time. And the Kuwaiti Brotherhood initially aimed to Islamize society from the ground up, essentially using the grassroots to create large level change, basically uh, emulating the, 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 uh, emulating what uh, Hassan al-Banna's original vision was, uh, was uh, for the Brotherhood, that it would use the grassroots to gradually create change. I think also I'd argue that one of the hallmarks of what I call rentier Islamism is this um, basically working within state structures 
like, like education ministries in order to accrue social capital and then political capital from there. So as I mentioned, these, these state structures are just too strong, too well-funded um, for brotherhood movements to directly um, combat, and so they tend to work within them and then uh, accrue social capital and influence in that way. Um, and in Kuwait, I think we see most clearly this social capital converted into political capital and over time into uh, political pragmatism. So during the 1960s, Brotherhood members from abroad as well as the indigenous group as elsewhere in the Gulf were seen as a welcome bulwark against Arab nationalism, which kind of dominated uh, Kuwaiti politics at the time. Um, in 1961, in Kuwaiti independence, the Brotherhood uh, rebranded itself as Jamiat al-Islah al-Ishtimai, the Social Reform Society, or Islah, which is still the social arm of the organization today. Um, and its goals were largely the same as the previous organization. Um, but there were more mentions of political life, like the need to Islamize legislation. And so there's hints that it would become increasingly politicized as an organization. And with the fall of Arab nationalism, kind of in the late 60s and early 70s, the Brotherhood became increasingly influential in Kuwait um, and then formally entered politics as a bloc only in 1981. So throughout the 80s, we see the Kuwaiti Brotherhood in Parliament focusing on social policies that they thought would Islamize society. And they did have some success with the passage of a law, for instance, uh, that limited Kuwaiti nationality to uh, Muslims banning the consumption of alcohol in embassies. It, it had previously banned, been banned throughout the country, um, as well as successfully ousting an education minister whom the Brotherhood considered too secular. So uh, very much this focus on, I guess, Islamist social policies. Um, so when Parliament was dissolved in 1986 and had still not been restored in 1988, the Brotherhood for the first time joined a cross-ideological movement, the constitutional movement, and this essentially agitated for the return of parliamentary life. Um, it was ongoing, these kind of meetings of this group were ongoing when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in August of 1990. And over the course of the occupation, the Kuwaiti Brotherhood, I think, took on a role that we see brotherhood movements elsewhere in the region taking on, providing services. They were a big part of the resistance movement, um, and they were quite influential. And and the, so the occupation was an interesting point for the Brotherhood because it demonstrated their ability to provide tangibly for people, but also it led to a break with the mother Egyptian organization. Um, and this is the only one that of the, of the Brotherhoods in the Gulf that has had this formal split from the mother group, um, though there have been tensions with other um, branches and the Egyptian organization. So while the Egyptian organization had condemned the invasion, they also criticized the non-Arab resolution of it through a US-led coalition, and so this led the Kuwaiti Brotherhood to separate itself from the Egyptian group. Um, I think that allowed the Brotherhood a lot more freedom in Kuwait to take on an increasingly nationalistic and local agenda. And so in the lead up to the 1992 elections, the Kuwaiti Brotherhood created a political arm, Harakat al-Dusturiya al-Islamiya, the Islamic Constitutional Movement, um, which I refer to as, as the ICM, but it's often referred to as Hadas, so it's Arabic acronym as well. And I think that, that so while that uh, is the political arm, we have ISLA remaining as the social arm of the organization. And I think the ICM has a lot of power now to, to take on politically pragmatic aims um, and also to increasingly work with non-Islamist movements in particular um, towards kind of political goals of political reform. So throughout the 90s, we see the ICM increasingly working al alongside non-Islamist blocs 
Um, and so becoming somewhat pragmatic, but these coalitions were always short-lived because the Brotherhood would always come back to the stress on social issues. So insisting on things like gender segregation in schools, um, they tried to create a state authority to direct the public to do good and refrain from evil, things which non-Islamist blocs considered to distract from the main political and foreign policy issues of the day. And so I would say that the Brotherhood only became kind of more politically pragmatic over time in 2006. So I think this is a change in the Brotherhood's um, strategy in Kuwait. And at this time, the Brotherhood became uh, aligned with a group, uh, with a movement, I guess, called Nabi Hamsa, the We Want Five movement, which agitated for a decrease in the number of electoral districts from 25 to five. And this was thought to reduce opportunities for gerrymandering and, and essentially help opposition movements get, get into parliament. Um, it was a successful movement. Um, and since that time, I think we see more and more cooperation between the ICM and non-Islamist uh, organizations, particularly on issues related to corruption, which is a huge um, issue in Kuwait. I was just in Kuwait actually a few weeks ago, and there was this anti-corruption protest. Um, the Brotherhood didn't formally participate, but there were people from kind of across the political spectrum talking about this, the problem with corruption. Um, and after the recent dissolution of uh, the cabinet, the ICM has put out um, a statement talking about the need for transparency, the need for the new cabinet to be committed to anti-corruption. So this is, is a, a rallying cry for kind of everyone across the political spectrum in Kuwait. And as we saw over the course of 2011, the largest protests in Kuwaiti history took place around this issue of corruption. Um, we also see the, the ICM not only uniting with the opposition on issues of corruption, but also even joining an electoral boycott for four years. So from 2012 until November of 2016. And this was due to the fact that the emir had changed the voting law in a way that, that they thought was um, disadvantageous uh, to to uh, opposition movements. So the Brotherhood did return uh, to Parliament in November 2016. It only has three out of 50 seats now, so it's not hugely powerful. Um, but it, it's still, I think it's interesting to look at what its priorities are listed as today. I mean, they're talking about examining the plight of the Bidun, the stateless population, addressing the revocations of citizenship for political reasons, safeguarding the welfare package, um, and changing the electoral law that was changed uh, previously in 2012. So this is a huge change from their previous agenda, which focused on social policies. And so the, it's also a very Kuwaiti, very localized agenda. It's one that appeals to voters, to constituents, rather than necessarily to um, kind of Islamists across the region. And so I think that kind of undermines this idea that this is a transnational movement. It's become very localized inside of Kuwait. Um, so now I'll move to Qatar, which is a, a very different example, though it started very similarly. Um, a lot of, again, members of the Egyptian Brotherhood had arrived in Qatar to staff the, the nascent education sector. As in Kuwait, the government welcomed this, um, again, due to the influence of Arab nationalism. And I think, I mean, it's worth noting that the nationalists in, in Qatar had quite a, a, a big and, and somewhat violent influence. I mean, there were labor strikes in Doha in the 1950s um, and a call for greater political representation in the 60s led by Arab nationalists. So they were seen as, as politically viable and t potentially politically dangerous. And so I think it's unsurprising that there was a recruitment of uh, Brotherhood members particularly in the education sector, which, as I mentioned, is not uh, unique to Qatar, or was not unique to Qatar in this period. Um, so it was only in the early 1970s when we have larger numbers of Qataris returning to the country after having studied abroad, especially in Egypt, um, and having seen 
the brotherhood there, that they wanted to emulate this movement in their own country. So in 1975, the brotherhood it founded itself in Qatar. Um, and in the words of its supreme guide, Jassim Sultan, he said it was a collaboration and a simple thing. And so when I asked him for the founding statement of the organization, he said, you know, it was on a single sheet of paper and that it had been lost. Um, which I think is a testament, which I, I do believe him about that. Some people were skeptical of this, but I, I think it really was quite an informal movement, even from the beginning, even at its height. Um, the group never had a political arm. It was essentially, I think, a social club more than anything else. Um, it focused on dawah, the study of the Quran and Sharia, um, and the arrangement of kind of youth and educational events more so than than anything much more structured than that. Um, there was one period, one period of organizational expansion, I think, in the 80s, when there was an influx of Syrian Brotherhood members. Um, and this, during this period, uh, briefly from between 1980 and 1986, there was a publication um, of the Qatari Brotherhood called Al Umal Qatariya. Um, but again, there was no kind of political arm form, not, not very formalized. Um, and a split did emerge during this period between a younger generation which wanted to ramp up activities and formalize them, and a, an older generation that was skeptical of the utility of doing so, especially in, in the culturally environment. And so this split, split led to a very interesting and very long internal examination um, of, the, of the ideology of the Brotherhood, of its structure, um, of its goals, and this was completed only in 1991. So the first part of the study um, is the only one that's published, or that I could find published, um, and it, it focused on examining the ideology of Hassan al-Banna, which it criticized for failing to adapt and to modernize to, to current situation. Um, and it, it's interesting that a, a lot of people take this first portion to, to, to um, to imply that there was a split between the Qatari Brotherhood and the Egyptian Brotherhood um, at this time. And so by aiming at the ideology of Hassan al-Banna, they were actually aiming at a split from the Egyptian branch. I don't know the extent to which that's true, but it's an interesting hypothesis. Um, so the second portion of, of the report, which is very unhelpfully unpublished, um, talked about the Brotherhood in Qatar specifically um, and concluded that the Brotherhood in Qatar had been frozen by dogma, lost direction, and failed to adapt. And so there was this conclusion that really the Qatari Brotherhood was of no benefit to Qatari society. Um, and this led to a vote in 1999 for the organization to dissolve itself. Um, and that process, about which very little is known, was completed in 2003. Um, a lot of people have asked me whether I think this was due to government pressure, and I really don't think that would be the case. There was never really any historic tension between the government and the Brotherhood. There could have been some fears about crackdown, however. Um, in the mid-1990s, we saw moves against Brotherhood affiliates in Oman, Saudi Arabia against the Sahwa, um, and in, in the UAE, and so there could have been some some concern that this could happen in Qatar. But I think ultimately the Brotherhood members felt that there was nothing really to be gained from having an organizational structure since they could continue doing most of their activities without it um, and without potentially raising any type of suspicion from the government or from anyone else. And so today the Qatari Brotherhood, I guess, exists only very on a very small level in terms of kind of intimate Quranic recitation circles. Um, but I will say I think it's really difficult, especially in the Qatari case, to understand how much popular support there is for something like the Brotherhood. Um, I think, first of all, there's a problem of labeling. A lot of people may agree with a, a lot of statements of Sheikh Karadawi, with other members, statements of members of the Brotherhood, 
Um, but they would never label themselves as, as Brotherhood members, especially, I think, since that term has become very um, politicized. Um, and so a, a lot of times they would call themselves you know, conservative Muslims or Wahhabis rather than members of the Brotherhood. So it's really difficult to know where support for, for Brotherhood-esque policies ends and where membership to kind of a more formal Brotherhood begins. Um, especially since, as I mentioned, the Khalsari Brotherhood only really ever focused on, uh, on social policy. Um, I think this may have been due to the political structures in Qatar. There's, of course, no elected body to which, I mean, there, there's no elected legislature to which the, the Brotherhood could kind of be elected. Um, and I think because Islamist demands in Qatar then have been confined to the social sphere, uh, limited mainly to calls for things like restricting the sale of alcohol, imposition of a dress code, and uh, limiting gender mixing, the government has never really forced a confrontation with the Brotherhood and has actually implemented some of these policies. There have been um, some limits on, on, of course, uh, a lot of these kind of social issues. Um, but I think that, that really the, brother, the government is uh, quite willing to work with the Brotherhood, at least to a certain extent, in, in, on these issues that there's a lot of agreement about, not only among kind of Brotherhood supporters, but also among kind of conservative Muslims. Um, and so I think this attitude at home that the Brotherhood is not problematic politically um, and is, a, is still like a social force that, uh, that appeals to certain segments of the population has uh, informed its foreign policy. And so we see Qatar um, being willing to work with Islamist partners throughout the Middle East, um, somewhat problematically for some of uh, for some of the, the rest of the neighbors there. Um, and, and further, I think, due to the prevalence of kind of conservative Islam inside of Qatar, these calls for social reform that have been demanded by the Brotherhood elsewhere may just be the, the reflection of the concerns of, of the Qatari population. And so when people talk about Qatar being, I believe I saw it somewhere called a mini Ikhwanistan, um, in fact, this could just be very much a, a problem with labeling. Um, so lastly, coming to the, the Emirati example, so the, the Emirati branch of the Brotherhood was first founded in 1974 under the umbrella of Jamiat al-Islah wal-Tajil al-Ijtimai, the Reform and Social Counseling Association, um, or Islah. Uh, and again, it first resembled the other branches in the, in the Gulf in that it focused on social policies and education. Um, it was a bit different structurally due to the, the separation of the UAE into these seven somewhat autonomous uh, emirates. And so the Brotherhood was actually first established in Dubai um, and was only the second civil society organization to gain approval from the Ministry of Social Affairs um, to form. It was actually rather incredibly today to think about, um, was financed by Dubai ruler Sheikh Rashid al-Maktoum. It was focused on preserving the UAE's Islamic identity, and so it wasn't seen as any type of political threat, and in fact was seen as potentially a, a, source of, a force of good, I guess. Um, later in the 1970s, other branches were established in the Emirates of Fujairah and Ras al-Khaimah, um, and the president and Abu Dhabi ruler, Sheikh Zayed al-Nahyan, was said to have given uh, land for a, a branch of Islam to form there, but ultimately never received permission um, to form. There was also, interestingly, no branch in Sharjah. Um, I think this may be due to the prominence of Arab nationalism or, or potentially due to traditional links and financial links to uh, the Saudi religious establishment. Um, in Ajman, the Brotherhood existed under the umbrella of a different organization. So this is a pretty fragmented structural environment for the Brotherhood in the UAE. That said, 
socially they all kind of knew each other and so there wasn't as much of a segregation as maybe would be implied by the, the fact that these structures were separated. Um, and so the Brotherhood in the Emirates was involved in social and cultural activities. Um, it also published a magazine of the same name whose articles tended to focus on the benefits of Islamic education, censorship of Western materials, restricting the sale of alcohol, stopping the general encroachment of, uh, of Western culture. Um, so kind of standard Islamist social policy issues, but also they discuss some political issues like corruption in government um, and unequal spending across the Emirates. So throughout the 1970s and 80s, members of Islam actually enjoyed ministerial positions, especially in education, justice, and al-Qaf. And in fact, the, the education ministry was under under the control of a, men, a member of Islam into, well into the 1980s. So the, the change in, in policy towards the Brotherhood is relatively recent there, um, which I think is worth noting. Um, and I think also it's worth noting that Islam did kind of develop a political reform agenda alongside this social program, pressing for more representative government, and in particular for more equal distribution of wealth across the Emirates, as I mentioned. And I think this is partly due to its popularity in the poorer no Northern Emirates. The Ras al Khaimah branch was seen as kind of the most powerful branch in the UAE. And of course, Ras al Khaimah is one of the more marginalized, poorer um, Emirates in the country. And I think that there was some concern in, in the government that that the Brotherhood could come to be a, an institutionalized political force inside of the UAE. Um, and so in the mid-1990s, we see the first move against the Brotherhood. In 1994, um, Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak um, had claimed that Islam's charity arm had funded Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Um, I haven't seen evidence either to support or to decline this. Nonetheless, uh, this led to the, the Emirati government to move against the organization. Um, the government dissolved Islam's uh, Emirate-level boards of directors and place them under the, minister, under the supervision of the Ministry of Social Affairs. Um, the government also banned Brotherhood members from holding public office. And so this is kind of the first time we see a, a targeted move against the Brotherhood and concern about its funding policies abroad. Um, the second crackdown involving hundreds of arrests uh, occurred following the 9-11 attack as the, the Emirati government, I think, was, was very eager to prove itself harsh on any type of potentially extremist um, ideology. I think we also see the beginnings here of this conflation in the mind of Emirati policymakers between brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, extremist violent jihadi groups. Um, and I think that conflation has driven a lot of policy making in the Emirates since that time. Um, and so we see kind of the, essentially the end of the Brotherhood. I mean, during this period between 2011 and 2012, the Brotherhood was, was hurt by kind of the arrests and the previous crackdown in the mid-90s, and so still continued some activities, mostly social. Um, and then in 2011, some members of ISLA, um, alongside secular reformers, drafted a petition um, basically urging political reform, particularly greater representation within the, the Federal National Council, which is the only elected body in the UAE. Um, despite the fact that the Brotherhood was by no means driving this petition movement, by the end of 2012, 94 members of Islam had been imprisoned. Um, they were arrested as security threats with the government claiming that members had admitted that the organization had an armed wing and intended to overthrow the government to reestablish a caliphate, which is a claim not substantiated by any of its publications or statements or in any conversations I've had with members. Um, but still, this happened at the end of 2012, and by November of 2014, 
the UAE had dubbed Islam and the Muslim Brotherhood, along with kind of a host of, of other NGOs, a uh, terrorist organization. Um, and Saudi Arabia earlier in 2014 had done the same. Um, and I think that, that this, this new policy, this move against the Brotherhood, and we can talk about this a bit, a bit more in detail, has, has a lot to do with the leadership of uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed of Abu Dhabi, as he's accrued more and more power, power nationally. Um, I think his feelings about the Brotherhood have, have been implemented into policy more and more. Um, I was reading a story recently that he had tutors from the Muslim Brotherhood as a child whom he really disliked, and so this kind of uh, has driven to a certain extent this suspicion of um, and crackdown upon any type of kind of Islamist movement inside of the UAE. Um, so I think it's worth noting that a lot of these policies come about not, not in an institutionalized way, but in a kind of a personalistic way as well. Um, and so ultimately, I guess, the, the Brotherhood as an organization that dictates that Islam should be a part of every aspect of life um, exists in super rentier states, in all types of states, in both the social and the political realm, often using the social to gain access to the political according to political opportunity structures in these states. Um, the movement in all three countries, as I mentioned, began with the goal of Islamizing society in the face of foreign and particularly Western uh, encroachment. And since their establishment, the groups have evolved in different ways and have become increasingly localized, as I mentioned. We have the Kuwaiti Brotherhood, which is privileged, has come to privilege uh, electoral success ahead of this initial social agenda that drove its creation in the 50s. The Qatari Brotherhood, on the other hand, has favored um, the ideological and social elements of the movement over um, the political. Um, it's worth noting, though, that even what appears to be social power in, in terms of the, the Qatari Brotherhood is actually is hardly politically neutral, um, particularly in a state that has few institutionalized means for political participation. Indeed, how they view what the government should do in terms of social policy informs how they see the, the role of the government more broadly. And so these social policies still are, are politicized, I'd say. Um, finally, in the Amirati case, before the most recent crackdown, uh, the Brotherhood kind of existed in a space somewhat between the, the politicized form of the Kuwaiti Brotherhood and the amorphous uh, represented by the Qatari Brotherhood. And so while some members advocated for social reforms, others did start to voice concerns about political freedoms more broadly, um, thereby leading to this kind of restriction from the regime. And I think there was a fear that, especially after the Arab Spring, the Emirati Brotherhood could evolve to, to look more like the Kuwaiti version, essentially could become more institutionalized um, and develop, developing a political platform alongside kind of the broader social um, vision. So rentier Islamism, I guess, as I see it, is a domestic political arrangement in which Muslim Brotherhood uh, movements tend to exercise political capital through informal means, despite uh, the presence of hydrocarbon wealth. So ideological affinity contributes to their social capital and then allows them to have the political influence in this way as well. Um, and again, as I mentioned, these are very much linked in under-institutionalized political systems. And so I think this demonstrates the, the, the ability of brotherhood movements really to be quite flexible. Indeed, the fact that the Brotherhood survives in some of the world's wealthiest rentier states, as well as in states undergoing civil conflict, in, in poorer states, in democratic states, in all types of environments, demonstrates the flexibility of the organization um, and its ability to adapt um, to suit different political environments. And I think because of that flexibility, we're likely to see the Brotherhood remain part of political discourse and certainly part of social discourse um, in the Gulf for, for uh, many years to come. And, 
So that's why I think a lot of this difference, this polarized opinion about the brotherhood in the Gulf um, may be difficult to, um, to resolve. And I guess I'll leave it there.